You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we are in Madrid. That was the Star Spangled Banner and you are indeed listening to El Clasico. My name is Daniel Freeba. I'm the host of this episode and I am in Madrid, precisely mere meters from the iconic Fuente de Cibeles or Cibeles Fountain where since the 1980s Real Madrid's footballers have traditionally celebrated titles by planting a kiss upon the lips of the Anatolian mother goddess Cibeles and where today Sep Kuss dressed in red was embraced by his Jumbo Visma teammates at the end of their 10,048.7 kilometer conquest of cycling's three grand tours. Brian Nygaard, you can probably hear the water, you can probably hear the gushing Sibeles fountain behind me. If you strain, if you cock your ear, you can maybe even hear um, the, well, the, the end, I think, of Sepp Kuss's victory speech um, he's just gone up on the podium it's been going for some minutes i must say brian um, i don't know if you're following it on television and you can tell me what he's actually saying because i can't hear an awful lot yeah i mean the reason why it was uh, a lengthy speech was that he actually did it both in english first and then in what i think was quite good uh, almost fluent spanish uh, obviously thanking his uh, team mentioning them all by name thanking his uh, staff the sports directors etc and thanking very specifically his family and his uh, his wife's family who have apparently been following the race uh, stage by stage uh, on site and then obviously also mentioning his father watching from home and uh, did a big shout out which uh, gave a bit of applause so there must be some Durangans some Colorado people uh, on site today and the near the fountain where the podium was uh, tonight so yeah very uh, uh, one of the better i would say grand tour winner speeches i mean one one part of it is obviously also that it's been a while since we've had a native english speaker on top of the podium it looked and sounded like a pretty good speech meanwhile brian i'm chasing primos roglic and Jonas vingegaard's manager matthias galli across the plaza de decibels but he's notoriously he's notoriously reticent about appearing on the podcast i've asked him before and um, he's doing his best to dodge me. Maybe we'll have some kind of intervention from him later on. But Brian, um, it's it's always a well, it's a beautiful setting. This you know it well. It somehow it's more intimate than the Champs Elysees. I always feel, and the crowds are kept quite a long way these days from the Champs Elysees podium at the end of the Tour de France. Um, whereas here we have the beautiful backdrop, the beautiful buildings, but also fantastic crowds. Not quite as raucous as usual. And partly because, as already discussed in this Vuelta a España, there aren't as many Latin American fans, South American fans, and usually it's in Madrid on this day when they are at their most raucous, and they've been sort of conspicuous through their absence. But 
Brian, we've seen a fantastic day. Maybe, well, maybe we'll learn more about Sepkus's speech later and we'll certainly talk an, an awful lot about Jumbo Visma later. But the stage itself was not, was not won by a Jumbo Visma rider. And Brian, I propose that we hear a bit more about what did happen in the stage um, as I get engulfed by another wave of Jumbo Visma guests. I, I think everyone who's who's ever bought, I don't know, yogurt in a Jumbo supermarket has been invited to Madrid today. There are thousands of Jumbo Visma guests, it seems that way. But Brian, without further ado, you're going to give us the tale of the etapa, the final one of this year's Vuelta a España. El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Thank you, Daniel. So the last stage of the 2023 Vuelta from the Hippodrome in uh, Sassuela to Madrid. Uh, as uh, it was 101 kilometers, uh, as uh, usual, we think it's sort of like just photo opportunities, drinking champagne until uh, the criterium starts in the center of Madrid. However, that was a, a stage in two parts because once we were done with the uh, first and only intermediate sprint, won by Ken Groves, the race absolutely exploded. Attacked by two riders, Nico Dens and Leonard Kemner from both and Hans Grower, they were joined by Rui Costa, and shortly after, Remco Evenepoel did a massive attack which prompted, interestingly, uh, both Caden Groves and Philip Ogana, meaning two of the favorites for the, for the victory on the stage, and they were probably the only ones who could follow. And then a very unique situation arose on this final stage and turned into a real thriller because the peloton was basically chasing their, uh, their asses off for the second half of the stage and they were literally just ha a handful of seconds from catching this super group uh, which I think super we can group. call them a yeah. super group shades of Crosby, Stills and Nash wasn't it Brian? On, uh, sorry yeah. Crosby, it's Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young I would even and Young. say exactly yeah. well they actually yeah it was certainly not the Grateful Dead um, <laughs> and uh, but just before uh, the sprint was uh, about to sort of commence as expected, and they caught them with, uh, yeah, literally on the, on the finishing straight, Remco Evenepoel did his second massive attack today, blistering attack for the, for the stage win, but it actually meant that he catapulted Caden Groves to head start to his sprint, and he took his third stage in this world. Ganner was second, Dens was third. And interestingly, Daniel, were you to not have seen the stage and just looking at the results, wherever you usually get that information from, you would have thought this was just business as usual, the exact same type of stage that we always see, but it was the exact opposite, but there were no time gaps. That's, they literally caught them just as they opened the sprint. And also when you look at the stage result, you, um, fourth place, uh, Hugo Pash, was obviously not in the breakaway. So he was the first of the chasing uh, peloton, chasing very, in vain. Very routine bunch sprint, wasn't it? Uh, it, I, it always um, pains me slightly. For, I think Bernard, you know, one of the, well, when he won a stage on the Champs-Élysées, that looked like a routine bunch sprint because they caught him on the line. But um, uh, that was not the case, was it? No, and I think we didn't um, Alexander Vinukurov win on the Champs-Élysées as well. He did, he yeah. did, he did. I think he won with a bit of a gap. I seem to remember him yeah. coming yeah. across the line with he, arms a lot. I think he even moved a place up in the GC on that day because of it. Um, yeah, it was offensive. I think it was one of the best finishing Grand Tour stages I can, I can remember. I mean, obviously very memorable. Uh, when you and I were covering the Giro and Cavendish won in, in Rome, but this this was a, a massive bike race, unexpectedly, but true to brand for for the 78th version of the Vuelta, I think. 
Well, Brian, as the Jumbo Visma riders and team staff finally sort of file by, they're heading back to their team bus and no doubt a night of celebration after the, the various various formalities, presentations on the podium. I've just seen Adi Engels, one of the direct sportifs, um, he's walked by with the clutching two magnums of champagne. hope they don't overindulge tonight, um, Brian, because as we know, alcohol is poison. It was their managing director, Richard Plugger, <laughs> who told us that. Um, but yeah. Brian, uh, he'll need to go a little bit uh, unplugger again tonight, doesn't he? <laughs> but Brian, let's uh, should we just fill the listeners in on the various classifications, various jerseys, who took home the final spoils? Um, as I see, Sepkus is still on the podium. Many, many minutes after the official proceedings have finished, he doesn't want to leave and. Who can blame him? But Brian, who won the various other competitions? Yeah, so the podium were with three Jumbo Visma guys, Sipkus, Jonas Vingo, Primus Roglic. After him, after them, three Spanish riders, Juan Ayuso, Mikel Landa, Enric Mas. Then the two Boro Hans Grohe riders, Alexander Vlasov and Sien Oitebrooks. Then Joao Meda and on 10th, and there's your Latin American um, entry with Santiago Buitrago. Uh, and the points jersey, Caden Groves, no surprise, uh, but he was followed by Remco Evenepoel, Andreas Krohn in third. King of the Mountains, Remco Evenepoel with a massive uh, lead, 135 points in total, and then second to Jonas Vingo and with 51, Michael Storr took third. Youth competition, white jersey was won by Juan Ayuso, Kian Ulcebrooks was second. Joel Miran, like how many how many times is he going to contest the? It's almost like he's stuck in the white jersey <laughs> competition. Joel Miran, he's been there since forever at least. He was third. Uh, teams competition obviously won by Jumbo Visma, twenty minutes and forty nine seconds. The Movi- Jumbo Visma won. Jumbo Visma won the Movistar classification. Exactly, but with Movistar no, all the way down no. to fifth place, two hours and seventeen uh, minutes after Movistar on fifth yeah, Brian Victoria second in the team classification and Bora Hensgrohe third crisis for Movistar um, not winning the team classification they haven't they haven't been doing that regularly for a couple of years now it must be said um, Brian a bit more sort of live commentary I've just actually seen Richard Plugger walk past um, his ears must have been burning he was taking a picture of the of the fountain this very beautiful fountain that I mentioned earlier the Fuente Cibeles which as I said as well in the intro this is where Real Madrid always congregate um, when they win titles which they often do I was reading earlier that it used to be where Atletico Madrid would congregate and it was sort of well it was conquered it was seized really by Real Madrid in the 1980s but Brian um, let's go back to the the stage because we're not going to dwell too long on the stage today it's mainly going to be a podcast about what Jumbo Visma and Sepkus have achieved today but Brian what a great what a fantastic final stage and if there are any if there are two riders in the world that can can sort of break the or shift the paradigm of these processional final stages it's Remco Evenepoel and Filippo Ganna isn't it but um, how did you read in particular the way they played their cards in those last couple of kilometers well one thing I thought was interesting it seemed as if that um, Ricosta took more poles today on the second half of this stage so for around like 45 kilometers than he's done in his entire career like oh, he, you're going to be in he, trouble. He, you're going to be. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Jonas Vingegaard and, and Primoz Roglic's <laughs> manager not wanting to talk to us on the podcast. Yeah. But 
Your friends at Corso Sport Management, I believe that's the name of Rui Costa Sports Management Agency, they will not they will not be happy with you this evening, Brian. Anyway, you were saying. Well, yeah, so well the the one thing interesting thing about it was that actually not until say like five hundred meters to go, there, there weren't any tactics. Everyone was for at least from what I could see, they went all in for this. And and the real scoop was that Caden Groves was there. You know, and potentially even Filippo Ganna because they were both pre-favorites to win this stage, but they all really took a lot of equity in, in this spectacular move. And I thought it was, yeah, the most entertaining finish to a Grand Tour than, that I can remember. And yeah, obviously the seeing um, Cavendish win in Rome was very special, but this was the quality of the bike race today on this stage was usually, you know, relatively yeah, beautiful setting, but not that interesting, I suppose, for, for the most parts of it. Today was a, a proper bike race with some major horsepower going all in for the stage win in a very untraditional fashion. I suppose working against uh, Ganna and Evenepoel in particular was the fact that it was so close and it was one of these where had anyone started to hesitate and start to play around earlier in the stage that that might have undone Caden Caden Groves um, and it could have worked in their favour but alas that wasn't the case Um, Brian uh, as you were just recapping there uh, the sprint finish um, Primoz Roglic walked past with his partner and Jonas Vingegaard as well with his family and Primoz saw a sign we love you Sep and um, he sort of feigned indignation and said, "What about me? What about me?" Um, he was in. <laughs> he really? was in. Yeah, he was in great form. He was in great form when he crossed the line. Um, irreverent as always. He's got this very sort of irreverent streak. Primoz Roglic. I think we all we're all pretty familiar with it now. And um, he was sort of in the middle of a big scrum of Jumbo Visma riders and indeed reporters, cameramen, and so on and so forth. And he started just throwing gels, the leftover gels, I think in his pockets and in his teammates' pockets, um, throwing them into the crowd and wishing everyone a Merry Christmas repeatedly <laughs> for about 30 seconds. Which was Well, you know, which it, was it's been a light motif in this world so that gifts have been given, you know. Maybe he was just... Uh, just staying within the context of how many people, uh, a lot of people at least saw saw the outcome. Indeed, indeed. And Brian, just last word then on this uh, sprint sprint finish, pseudo sprint finish, which and the stage, which pro- probably under normal circumstances would deserve more of our attention, um, but it is a momentous day. And um, just finally, Caden Groves, Vuelta a España. Um, has he joined the, the sort of top tier, the jet set? Um, difficult, of course, to see him lining up at the Tour de France as Alpecin de Koenig's number one sprinter. Well, they have Jasper Philipsen, of course. But um, how how much has he enhanced his reputation status on this Vuelta? Well, he's definitely hit uh, the, the, his shape and how he's been timing his sprints extremely well and they've they've, they've supported him they've, they've, the only team I really thought had a proper and well functioning sprint train a sprinter train but I also think he, he probably could have won two more stages if circumstances had been a little bit better you know the day when he either lost his balance stepped out of the pedal or or almost had to like divert uh, not to crash so yeah he, he will have, he will def- definitely remember this well as a as turning the page of, of next steps in his career. I'm not saying that he's a faster sprinter than Jesper Philipsen in any count, 
but he he deserves to to be the the leader of a of a team in a, in those races where where Philipsen is not the guy to to sprint for for sure. Brian, we're going to hear our first interviews of tonight's podcast, and we are going to pivot at this point, and it's going to become a bit of a Jumbo Visma loving, I, I suppose you could say, or certainly celebration. Um, I propose, Brian, for the last time in this year's Vuelta a España. And not in a mocking way or in a sarcastic way or a shit-stirring way. Um, we're going to hear the Succession theme tune for the last time. We know now, of course, Brian, who has taken the throne, who has claimed the throne in this Vuelta a España. No more war of succession at Jumbo Visma. Sepkus is the champion. So we're going to hear from Sepkus first. And then we're going to hear from two, I'm not going to call them unsung um, heroes because I think those in the know do know how important these two individuals have been. But Robert Hasink has been one of the men of the Vuelta. Um, he's regained... Well, not that necessarily he'd lost it, but he's he's rescaled some of the heights that um, he perhaps did early in his career. Robert Hastings, a veteran rider who has been dogged by bad luck in his Grand Tour career, but he's been on top form in this well and has been vital for Sepkus on many, many different types of terrain in many types of um, circumstance. And then we're also going to hear from Marijn Zeman, who is one of the coaches at Jumbo Visma. And I think most would agree, one of the real masterminds of not just this Vuelta a España, but the whole project at Jumbo Visma, what they've built there, what they are going to try to continue to build. And well, you're going to hear Marijn Zeman give away a couple of details here that are really intriguing, particularly about how Sepkus could have won this Vuelta a España by more than his final margin tonight. So it's Sepkus first, then Robert Haysink, and then Marijn Zeman. Yeah, it was in, incredible, really. I mean, uh, I, I think it's, for one, it's, it's pretty unique having uh, <laughs> the U.S. national anthem playing in, in Madrid uh, for a, a bike race in, in Spain. Um, so al- already that, that gave me a lot of, a lot of pride. Um, and... Uh, yeah, just just all the emotions that that culminate after after three weeks of, of concentration and um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to describe the emotions because it's it's three weeks of, of uh, hard work and, and concentration and just focusing on one day at a time. So it's it's like putting a big piece of work together rather than the instant gratitude of a, of a stage victory. Um, but yeah, that's that's been really really incredible to experience. I think I think this this race has occupied so much uh, mental energy that I've I haven't had time to think back on on where I've come from too much. Um, but yeah, every now and then you see something on on Instagram or or uh, get a message from an old old teammate or friend uh, from the past, and and uh, yeah, that always helps me realize where where I've come from. Pretty humble beginnings, I would say. Um, and yeah, just just enjoying the sport for for fun and and for for the passion, and never never taking things 
too seriously. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely has been really special, and I was really, I was really happy to be part of this one. Uh, it's one to uh, to never forget. I think uh, one, two, three has never never been done before, and uh, yeah, all three Grand Tours go to Jumbo Visma and uh, with three different riders. That's that's definitely really special. It it, it had been said that our object objective was uh, to win in 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 all three, and uh, there was some skepticism um, amongst uh, me and, and 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 a few other old old riders. But uh, um, to be honest. Um, I think that's also a good thing. I mean, you always have to ask, ask questions if it's really possible. But the planning has been really good. Um, the guys were all in top shape. And uh, in the end, um, we managed to all be here together and um, uh, have a, re yeah, a, a, a group of, of, of friends, I would say. Uh, let's call Dylan van Baalen, for example, a guy who can win the biggest classics in the world, but uh, just here to, to help out. And, uh, and, and I've, I myself, I've enjoyed that role as well uh, very much. No, but I mean, we, we were here with, with Jonas and Primoz as leaders. And uh, yeah, part of, part of our strategy was that uh, to, to keep Wilco and, uh, and Sepp uh, in, in the GC um, and because yeah that, that could uh, create possibilities and uh, force other teams to work or um, so that was that was actually the plan and uh, well then he, uh, then yeah that was also the main main plan on the day of the Gava Lambre and uh, on, and on that day uh, it worked really well and uh, actually also we didn't want Seb to win with, with too big of a margin to to keep Jonas and Primoz also in the game still and uh, yeah so that actually from that day on um, of course it was uh, yeah it, it was it was a very uh, big part of, of our strategy and uh, yeah and, and then Seb continued to, to, to do so well actually I think he even uh, uh, improved over the, over the days um, and over the weeks and uh, yeah then he was um, more and more it became very realistic that he could win the uh, the Vuelta of course. Yeah. That's, that's interesting I've not heard that before that you didn't want him to win by too much on the Havalambre stage was that something that was being talked about in the car that day? Uh, yes because yeah we were uh, I, I, actually I was that day also behind him and I was in yeah, with intense contact with uh, with Grisha and Mark in the, in the in the first car, and actually in the peloton, the teams were actually suffering a lot, and uh, was really hard to, to close it. And I think if we because we were of course with uh, with Tratnik and Walter and Van Baalen in uh, in that group, and uh, yeah, I, I really had to tell them to slow down. Uh, I think if they went uh, full there, then 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 Seb would have won really with a big margin uh, that day compared to the GC guys of course um, uh, in the GC group because everyone was so uh, so tired behind and uh, yeah so that yeah we uh, we really had to yeah, keep uh, keep the balance that day yeah you'll want to I know you're ambitious you guys will want to even move up a step next year I mean obvious question difficult question to answer but what's next how can you top this uh, I cannot top this uh, that's uh, this is a uh, First time it, uh, it it happened in history, and uh, hopefully it take a long time for another team to uh, to yeah to uh, to break this record. Um, but yeah, I mean there's still a lot of goals uh, to go, and I think yeah one one thing important, of course in sports it's about uh, winning and trophies, but I think for us it's also like uh, the passion of, of getting better and improving and. Uh, Finding out, uh, yeah, doing things together uh, and, and, and learning from each other, and see what we can progress. And 
see what other teams do and see what we can learn from them and uh, see in other sports what we can learn and I think yeah the I think that's that's the biggest drive uh, for for all of us and uh, yeah if, if that ends in winning uh, trophies it's it's fantastic but it's also yeah that uh, in Dutch they they say it but it's uh, uh, the journey is more nice than the destination uh, and and that's I think um, how it feels uh, for us yeah it's a process not results yes yes and of course the results and this is fantastic to to achieve it and, and it makes a lot of people uh, happy including me of course but yeah it's also like in, in one month we do the evaluations and it's also we have we have good days together very good discussions it's also uh, very um, yeah, inspiring to find to find gaps where you can still improve and, and yeah but, uh, we do a lot of things we do it on a good way but I also uh, really know that we can still uh, get better yeah that that is a goal for us to to be one of the top teams in uh, sports teams in the world and uh, yeah i think yeah, we are we are now on the good way i mean we also have, have to stay humble because we are not the all blacks yet or we are not uh, uh, the chicago bulls or uh, um, or barcelona in the good times or uh, we are not there but that that's an ambition to yeah, to create a legacy and that people uh, in 10 or 20 years say, like, okay, but that, that team was, uh, they did it on, on their way. And uh, yeah, um, it's, uh, yeah, we, uh, we achieved success, but also the way how we did it was also special. And, uh, um, and, and I think, yeah, that was also this world, of course. I mean, um, it uh, was not uh, easy to manage, uh, but uh, I think people will not forget it uh, easily. Uh, Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, Cycling Podcast Team Car, the back of the pack, please. Thank you very much to Map for supporting the Cycling Podcast. Their support has played a big role in us being able to cover the three Grand Tours daily and with Daniel on the ground over there in Spain for the Vuelta, of course. We're going to hear from product manager Hamish Lowe about sustainability and why it's so important to Map as a company as they continue to grow and evolve. And, well, as Hamish explains, sustainability is about creating products that last. And if you want to check out the Map range, go to the website map.cc so my name is hamish and i'm the product manager here at map at our hq in melbourne my role is responsible for building maps product roadmap and guiding the process to bringing those products to life through the development journey and handing them over to the marketing and creative team you know the really important factor here is building products that have durability and longevity so pieces that you can rely on and know that they're going to hold up over that extended period and that really comes from having a, you know, a sense of confidence in your kit. And from an internal standpoint, we really need to build that confidence ourselves to know that we're happy to hand that over and, and to sell that to our customers. So if it really doesn't meet our own performance standards, we're not willing to put that out into the market. You know, thinking about sustainability, it's really an area that is evolving so quickly and an area that you know we have to continue to learn and understand and stay in touch the reality is there's there's no clear finish line when it comes to sustainability it's not clear cut and you always need to work to do more and we're really honest with ourselves and knowing that we have more that we we want to do and we want to achieve um but in some ways that is really motivating to know that there is that finish line is always an area that we're, we're reaching for. And it's really those kind of marginal gains working towards that longer term um, achievement 
that we uh, you know that we always have to stay focused and ensure that it's really on on the priority list at the front end of developing new product. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, as I have momentarily retreated to the quiet of the press room in the Madrid Town Council Chambers, adjacent to the finish line. The Ritmo de la Vuelta, in which we attempt to convince the listeners that our credentials as music commentators don't begin and end with an iTunes library consisting of 50% Taylor Swift, 49% 1990s hip-hop, and 1% Andre Hazus. Any Dutch listeners will be surprised and horrified in equal measure. That is, as we delve into the history of official Vuelta España songs down the ages, the year today, Brian, guess which year it is? It's 2023. And the official song was, is, has been, Corazón Sin Salida, roughly translated, Dead End Heart. And it was performed by Estopa, a band of two Catalan brothers, David and José Manuel Muñoz, who started writing songs while working on an assembly line at a Seat car factory close to Barcelona. It was from the Catalan capital, of course, that this welter rolled out in the rain and near darkness three weeks ago. It also began with a surprise, early starters DSM Firmenek winning a TTT that will be remembered more for Remco Avenepoel's post-race outburst and We're Not Monkeys in a Circus soundbite than Lorenzo Milesi ending the day in the red jersey. The following day was also rain-affected with Andres Kron winning a rather odd GC-neutralised Montjuic circuit race and another Italian, Andrea Piccolo, inheriting La Roja and overall lead. Day three saw a Remco win in Andorra and now infamous post-finish line tumble, meaning he ended the day sporting a jersey of the same hue as the blood trickling down one side of his face. Finally, on stage five, a sprint and first noticed that Caden Groves and Alpacin de Koenigs was the fastest train on the line. Then, the next day, first noticed that Remco and his boys were being derailed. A signal failure, if you will, as a break featuring Sepkus rerouted the 2023 Vuelta and the Americans' career. Victory at Havalambre. Two minutes, 52 seconds gained on Roglic and Vingegaard and three minutes, 24 on Avenapool. GC Kuss, suddenly not just meme, but maybe, just maybe, achievable dream. On the menu the next day, a delicious soup. While stage seven saw another jumbo helping. Kuss, Ving, Rog, apparently all helping each other. And Roglic's stage win helping Kuss to take red. A Kemner solo closed out week one. While week two promised to test Jumbo Visma's chemistry. As TT Kuss limited his losses in Valladolid and back started to straighten. Jesus rose next, Herada that is, and to victory that was at the Laguna Negra, before Molano crucified Groves in Zaragoza. Then stage 13, unlucky for some and fatal for Evenepoel, nailed not to a cross but the road on the Orbisque, while disciple Jonas rejoiced. Remco's resurrection at La Rabelagua took just 24 hours. Decision time at Jumbo Visma would take longer to arrive. May the best man win, the strongest survive, and natural order prevail. Preferably one that also paid heed to tactical machinations and a funky hashtag, Zaman Winnen. 
One family meeting took place behind closed doors, a couple of others on the road mid-stage in the rarefied air of the Astorian Mountains and beamed across the world. They had all agreed, perhaps to disagree in Roglic's case, but also to toe the line, a mature resolution, and one worthy of the team that today enters a pantheon, not Madrid's Pantheon de Hombres Ilustres, its pantheon of illustrious men, two kilometres south of here, past the Prado, but the pantheon of cycling's greatest teams. Brian, cycling's greatest teams. Indisputably, now, any conversation about that must, must include Jumbo Visma. Would you agree? Yeah, without a doubt. I would say even before we talked about the outcome of this World Tip, even if they had just wanted, having done uh, the same thing in the two former Grand Tours this year, in itself gives you the uh, the, t- the keys to the to the Pantheon. But uh, finishing with three riders on the podium is it's just truly exceptional at a completely different level. And it gives you a lot to think about. It certainly gives a lot of other teams something to think about as well. Brian, I'm going to give you a choice. It's a choose-your-adventure at this point. We can either talk about Sepp Kuss, first of all, or we can talk about Jumbo Visma and the longevity, potential longevity of their dynasty. What shall it be, A or B? I would say A, because it's a good starting point for the second part uh, being B. Okay, then. Let's talk about Sepp Kuss. And Brian, I'm going to, well, I'm going to make a confession straight away in this final day of the España podcast. I was never a believer in GC Kuss. I didn't become a believer in GC Kuss until midway through the third week. Just having observed him over the years, and even, you know, there were some revealing comments from Jonas Vingegaard, I thought, yesterday, when he talked about Sepp getting his chances in the future, if he wants those chances. And it seems to me there is still a question mark over whether he desires to become a team leader. And we heard him, even on the Angliro, talk about how, in his opinion, he would probably never end up in this position again. Did you believe in GC Kuss either before this race, during? I, I didn't believe in it until after the time trial. Uh, because after the time trial and also maybe after Tourmalet, there were other circumstances that needed to arise for it to really happen. You know, and other than the, the rather late decision-making process within Yombo. But I have to say that after the time trial and, and then with the p- potential of not having any real competitors for the top spot in the GC. It was a choice they made that he was to win the race. So, But if, if it, they'd written it like some of them supposedly wanted to, I, I, I didn't think we had any grounds to believe in it because then they would have dropped him. I mean, we've talked earlier on in the world too about, well, my, the basis of my sort of doubts was just, just observing how he has ridden Grand Tours in the past. Obviously, he has been a domestique, but um, particularly having observed him in the sort of finales that you get, that are sort of stock in trade of the Vuelta Espana, these explosive finales. And I sort of mistook him, in some cases, sitting up for him not really having the know-how or simply the explosive power to, to not leak time on those particular days. And, well, I think, I think it's first to set out, it's important to set out first that this is not, it's not a fluke win, it's not a, a flash in the pan, it's not a win that's been gifted, it's not a, a, what the Italians call Fuga Bidone, it's not a Roger, Roger Valcoviac in the Tour de France, um, uh, Carlo Clerici in the Giro d'Italia, these riders who won Grand Tours due to breaks that, 
that sort of gained them 10, 15, 20 minutes. And the, the GC leaders could never haul them back. In Chris's case, I mean, I mentioned there how much he actually gained. It was just under two minutes on Vingegaard and Roglic. And it was just over three minutes on Avonapool. But um, he has he has surprised me. Um, I don't necessarily think that he'll win a Grand Tour again. But that is not to say that he, he his status doesn't change quite significantly after this uh, Vuelta a España. And he will be seen in a different light as well by other teams. And he'll be used as a different kind of weapon by Jumbo Visma. Yeah, I think that's a really very relevant point. But I also think we need to distinguish between... GCQs riding for Jumbo Visma or, mm. or, or GCQs riding for any other team. Uh, I'm not saying that you shoehorn yourself into a position for winning a Grand Tour just by riding for Jumbo Visma. But you can't just isolate someone's ability either as an all-rounder or as a great climber or someone that's quite consistent over three weeks. You can't isolate that from a team that knows how to do it not just because of the other riders who will help him in, in, the, in the project, but also they're set up with the time trial, nutritionists, uh, recuperation. All of those things need to be aligned for someone to actually realistically have a chance to be a GC rider. And look at uh, how, how hard it's been, for instance, for Evanepoel to try and, and match those very high levels of, of GC internal surroundings. Uh, in one of the biggest teams in the world. So I would say like, yeah, and then you can sort of by default say, well, if Kuz stays with Jumbo Visma, there will, there's a potential that there'll be other riders who will be, will be stronger than him and in a better position than him, even, even if they all get their own chances. But I think the relevant point here is that he'll be looked upon as a different type of weapon. And that's very uh, useful for Jumbo Visma because they, they could potentially do what they did here and yet still win with another rider. So he has become a, a, a way more dangerous weapon in, in, a, in an already quite scary lineup. Brian, we know plenty about Sepp Kuss. We, I think everyone is unanimous in well agreeing that he's a, very, he's a very nice chap. He comes across very well in interviews, always has done. Um, he's been selfless in his teamwork over the years since he joined Jumbo Visma. Um, few things Brian picked out a few bits of trivia that people may not know about Sepkus he finished his degree in advertising at the University of Colorado in May 2017 um, a bachelor's degree I believe or whatever the equivalent is in the United States I think a, a fair bit is known about his father his father is this um, well, celebrity, uh, one of the most influential figures on the Colorado ski scene he was a Nordic ski s- coach um, for the US ski team from 1963 to 1972. He competed in both Alpine and Nordic skiing himself for six decades, uh, apparently. Um, Sepp told us yesterday morning, wasn't it, that his father was at home watching the race. He's 93, but apparently still in very good shape, but he wasn't going to travel over to Madrid unless unless something has changed. Um, Kuss speaks Spanish, some Catalan, his wife, of course, is Catalan, some German, because um, when he was young, his mother's side of the family spoke to each other in German. I don't, I'm not sure exactly um, what her German heritage is. She's, she's here in Madrid, so maybe we'll catch up with her later and find out. Um, as we heard earlier in the Vuelta, Brian from Grisha Neerman, the Jumbo Visma direct sportive. He was first approached by Jumbo Visma on the strength of his performance in the final stage of the 2017 Tour of California to Pasadena, won by his then rally teammate, even, even Evan Huffman. 
uh, Nierman accosted Cuss at the end of a at the end of race party rather that night. He said Cuss was pretty drunk, but Nierman nonetheless got Sepp's digits and they arranged a date aboard an Ergo trainer. And just finally, Brian, so far this year, um, 3T, 3GT GC Cuss has ridden just over 29,000 kilometres, climbed just under 550,000 metres, which is over 100,000 metres more than his Andorran neighbour, Pavel Sivakov, but only around 1.2% of the way to the moon. Long-term listeners will appreciate the significance of those figures. One thing about um, Seb Kusin about how this will impact American professional cycling or the following of American professional cycling because being a Colorado native, it Colorado is, I think it goes, we need to touch upon that as well and some of our colleagues I'm sure will talk about it as well because Colorado is really the, the what what Tuscany or Lombardy is to Italian cycling. It's it's a it's a hub. It's a point of reference. It's really where where cycling has a home. I think in the states. So if being the next GC winner from the states, it makes a lot of sense that someone will come out of Colorado to take that victory. And I think it's going to have a very deep impact also on on the um, atmosphere around professional cycling in the states in general. It would obviously have been different had it been the Tour de France because then it would have been a revelation. It's still a revelation of sorts, but I think it's a big tribute also to the cycling community and all the initiatives. You know, we often when we hear about cycling in the states now, it's often you know gravel rides and those you know big extreme or mass participation rides. But I think this is a real revelation for for other for like for classic road cycling in the states as well. Also, Brian, it's been noticeable in this Vuelta a España. This isn't this doesn't just apply to the United States, but just the res of this Vuelta España partly because of the politics or the presumptions we've made um, the media social media we've all made or the, the way we speculated about the politics in the in the team it's really fascinated people and we've seen evidence of that the echoes of this race you know articles in Forbes um, Ben Stiller tweeting continuously pretty much about I don't think um the Wall Street Journal has written so much about cycling as they've done no, I don't in the remember past, them, in the I don't past remember, 10 days. I don't remember them extensively covering um, Angel Casero as welter victory in 2001. But that's a sort of a, a reflection on, I think, uh, an upward trend in the numbers of people that are following professional cycling, the breadth of people that are following professional cycling. But it sits alongside, Brian, as you sort of alluded to there, a US scene that's kind of withered on on the vine a little bit, a domestic scene in terms of racing and and teams um, over the last few years in the, well, we're well, we're well downstream of Lance Armstrong now, but it's sort of, the, we're kind of in the next generation after the Armstrong, the, the post-Armstrong or, or the mid-Armstrong boom. Yeah, it feels like, you know, I've also, I've been in the States a fair bit of time in the last years and I'm soon to go again. And it, it felt like cycling in, um, in as a TV sport, something that people follow, you know, even given the, the time differences and the odd hours you'd have to be up or, or be late or early, is that it's back to sort of what it was before Lens, that it was like, you'd have to be a bit of a geek, you'd have to be, a, a, you'd have to f- go and look for it yourself to really be, find the interest in it you know before with Lance because he was you know he was a, he was an iconic athlete bigger than the sport in the states at least and and after that it sort of it felt to me like it went backwards towards when it was a sport that 
relatively mm-hmm. few people knew about, but those who did were, were very much into it. And, and this is a this is a push in, in the other direction when you actually have a an athlete that that people will identify with as someone that they'll recognize. Brian, we're going to move on now, or in just a second, talk about your movies more broadly and well, this extraordinary achievement, three Grand Tours this year with three different riders, a clean sweep of the Vuelta podium. But it would, would be remiss of us, Brian, uh, not to continue or not to end, conclude this mini-series that I introduced about a week ago based on my crazy crackpot theory that three Grand Tours in a season was now the way to go because Sepkus was proving that it is the way to go and if anyone wants to win Grand Tours in the future, this is what they should be doing. Brian, last stop, last stop on this journey, on this wild ride that we've been on with this mini-series over the last few days. I thought it was only appropriate, only right to conclude with who, Brian? Sepkus himself. Here is Sepkus. Surprise! (laughs) Here is Sepkus speaking to me yesterday morning. I managed to get hold of him and uh, in my sort of evangelical mission that I'm carrying around the Vuelta España and we'll ask him whether he thought he was winning this Vuelta España more because of or in spite of having done three Grand Tours this year. To listen to some people, you're in this position in spite of having done three Grand Tours but I want to know from you, do you think you're also in this position because you've done three Grand Tours and it's given you things that maybe some of the other riders here don't have? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, yeah, for me, I, I feel better than I have all season. I mean, that's that's due, uh, of course, to just being in this position and, and really, really wanting it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think from the, the past years, I've, I've found for myself that I, I get better with, uh, let's say, more training or uh, more Grand Tours. And, and it's also something that I enjoy it's it's not uh, a sacrifice or or yeah training in in the sense of the word for me so just just enjoying and I think that's the most important part same again next year (laughs) Uh, we'll see we'll see Uh, uh, first just have to yeah get through this one and then and then think about other things but for sure it's it's possible and um, yeah it's, it's been a unique experience Brian three Grand Tours this year all of them won by the same team in yellow and black. Now, when I started thinking about how we would discuss this this evening, um, besides sort of showering them with confetti and exhausting all superlatives, talking about what an extraordinary performance it, it has been, maybe this is my sort of glass half empty nature, Brian, but I started thinking about this in terms of a dynasty. And when one thinks about dynasties, one also, one also is inclined to think about and wonder about how long it's going to last how it might end or to be a bit more glass half full about it how do Jumbo Visma go about sustaining this extraordinary extraordinary level of achievement that they've attained this year well I I don't think there's any uh, Grand Tour winning team in cycling at least in recent history that sort of that feels like they can rest on the laurels because they, they'll have to face harder competition in teams that are better prepared or potentially riders who are stepping up a level. But I also think it goes into the the context of talking about these wins that, yeah, the Giro was won with a very narrow margin and it, might, it, it could have gone the mm-hmm. other way, right, to be fair. Vingo probably would have won the Tour. I don't know, had uh, Pogacar been at his best level, but he clearly wasn't because you know, he wasn't up to the normal standard of his for someone who's won the race twice before and he had his injury that 
maybe or maybe not had a bigger impact than, than we thought it would, at least in the first part of the race. But, and you can also say when you show up with Kuss, or maybe I should mention him last, but when you show up with Vingegaard, Roglic and Kuss, and whomever else they bring to a race, even without Wout van Aert, it's, especially with the Vuelta at least, they, they, will have, they need to win. It would have been a massive disappointment mm. for them with that lineup if they didn't. And I think from, um, you know, we're, we often talk about owning the narrative and, and they, they, they embraced the narrative, I would say, in the Vuelta because they decided that it made sense for them to actually ride the way they talked they wanted to ride, at least with, with Kuss. But I'm not sure that it's, it's good for neither cycling nor, as a matter of fact, Jumbo Visma if they will do a clean swipe next year on the Grand Tours. That's not going to make them any more popular. That's not a way to continue the success. The way for them to continue the success is, in my opinion, to focus on the Tour, to win other bike races, to be better at the Classics, which was a bit of a miss for them this year. So I think the, the domination is not necessarily the way that it doesn't mirror success that you just keep winning and winning everything. It's not... Maybe football is a bit like that or Formula One, mm. but I don't think I don't think anyone being that dominant has ever become more popular that way in cycling. Even if we're, you know, way, way past, uh, you know, the, the speculative allegations, etc. I just don't think it's, it'll benefit Jumbo for, if they were to mm. do the same uh, next year. The, the, last night I touched on the fine line, the very thin line between greed and ambition. And I sort of suggested that in this instance, it's proved to be a good thing because they were kind of greedy, gluttonous coming to this Vuelta a España. Uh, it, it turned... I think pretty soon in the race from wanting to win this race, beat Remco Evenepoel into thinking, right, we can take it all here. And that's what they did and that's what they went after. They will probably approach next year with the similar gluttony because um, otherwise translated, they're extremely, extremely ambitious. I think, Brian, it's, it's instructive in these cases when talking about um, dynasties. There's been a lot of talk in the last few days about salary caps, whether cycling needs one. Um, I think most people would agree, and we don't have full transparency on this, but most people would acknowledge that they're not the richest team in professional cycling. They're one of the richest teams. I, I don't. I still don't see that as the main reason why they are winning what they're winning. Um, but I think American sports are interesting, looking at dynasties in American sports, because they do have salary caps in a lot of instances. So, you know, if you look at some of the dynasties in the NBA, um, for example, the, the LA Lakers at the start of the noughties, and I'm not an expert on the NBA, but most people consider that to have sort of started to break down partly because of a power struggle between Kobe Bryant, maybe a battle of egos between Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. The, the one that people sort of hold up as a great example of a team that managed to sustain a high level of success, they weren't all conquering, but the San Antonio Spurs with, well, their coach was Greg Popovich, no relation of Yaroslav Popovich, the um, little Trek director sportif. But people always talk about the lack of egos in that team. And they weren't flashy, they weren't spectacular, but they had great longevity over a decade. As I say, they didn't win the NBA championship every year. Um, but, you know, given the backdrop of the last week and the conversations we've talked about, or the conversations we've had about the cohabitation of, of Vingegaard and Roglic, Bram, what's, what needs to be the priority? What needs to be Richard Plugger's priority in terms of personnel? Maybe we'll talk in a minute about finances and you know, whether they're going to find a new sponsor. But uh, over the next two or three years, do you see it as key that Roglic stays on board? He's this kind of linchpin of the project and he's been there since the start. Or is it important, as a lot of top managers, executives say, that you anticipate the, the general 
the, the generational change that has to come at some point. And if you if you delay and you um, prevaricate about that, then that's very dangerous. I, f- I fully agree. And that's a, that's a difficult decision and it's a difficult thing to do because as we, as you and I have spoken about, the, the, a big part of the culture, a big part of what really turned this team into what they are today is Primus Roglic. And, and without talking about the finances, the, the difference between Jumbo, Wisman and a lot of other teams, and we spoke about that as well, is that they've discovered riders that they've turned into champions. And that goes for all three of those riders on the podium later today. But it would be a huge mistake to not already have two or three riders at a, who are maybe just 18, 19 years old today who will potentially be at that level in a couple of seasons. Uh, because you'll always, you always have to work very specifically, even if it's not the case, towards the decline of your current uh, goal-scoring mm. winners, you know. Uh, and Vingegaard is still young, Roglic is not, and Kuss doesn't seem like he necessarily wants to be or have that type of responsibility. He's been quite explicit about mm. that uh, up until now, at least, maybe potentially going onwards. So I think they, uh, they'll, they just, complacency will never, won't get you anywhere in elite sports. And they'll have to, as a, as a pr- mere principle, know that they'll be up against harder competition next year. But they'll also have to work it's not work, but it'll, it's, this year uh, Wells has been a turning point for their internal coherence. And you and I spoke about that last night, that they, they'll, they'll need to m- make some kind of amends. Or, mm-hmm. uh, I, I certainly would like to be uh, directing the Netflix episode for when they go on winter camp and talk about the race schedule next year. I mean, it's in, it's in less than a month, we'll know the Giro mm-hmm. route and, and the Tour route and the Wells route may, could be you know, maybe not as important. So they'll have to they'll have to figure out a way to to balance those ambitions because it's it's great to have ambitious athletes and ambitious athletes want more and they want to do better, but their their race program is almost a, as big as a challenge as their looking at competitors mm. possibilities. So that's going to be quite interesting, and and people will follow that I think very closely. It, it is fascinating though, isn't it, Brian, to think about the ingredients that sustain these dynasties. There are so many different ingredients that you need to have. Humility um, is one. Uh, harmony is another. But you know, you could say that the harmony comes from humility. Um, in, in cycling, what we've talked about there, talent scouting, timing, um, when to when to sort of take the next, um, well, the, the next would be stars off the production line, and um, the, there are no, there are a lot of things that can that can trip you up as well. Um, in, in and sometimes you don't know. I mean, if you look at, uh, for instance, the 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 qualms this year of Patrick Lefebvre, they they basically went from two years in a row, three years in a row, dominating one-day races dominating the Grand Tour sprints to having almost nothing. And they, that to me goes to show that either development's been off, the internal coherence has been derailed, or other things happen, or maybe there was just maybe that was the zenith mm. of, uh, of, of that formation. So it, it's the, the last thing they need to do is, is to think, oh, we'll try and do this again next year. That, that would be a huge mistake. As far as teams are concerned, I must say I see Ineos still as the biggest threat because UAE, I'm sorry, but UAE still aren't really convincing me in terms of the apparatus. I mean, Jumbo Visma have, have, are in an incredible position at the moment in that I think the reputation they have in the peloton is such that every rider who is thinking about joining them or has been approached to join them believes that Jumbo Visma are going to make them better and I don't necessarily think that's the case with UAE. Sky had that for a while. 
going back further, HTC had that um, under Bob Stapleton, but the problem they also had was that the more successful they got, the more their wage bill went up and up and up, and that will be happening to Jumbo Visma, and that puts a, a bigger and bigger financial burden on the sponsors. And fortunately now we're in a bit of, well, it's, it's a more stable time in professional cycling and we are seeing these long-term contracts and if you think back to 2010 2011 when htc were very successful it was incredibly incredibly volatile and there was atmosphere over budget mm. because they were they were floating because of the money that t-mobile they basically cut a check to to stableton and that was the money that they spent until mm. it was gone and i i think other teams and i think your Visma at this point at least because they've grown these champions themselves and that's also why the atmosphere in the team will be important. But for them in a long period, it's been atmosphere over budget. And we've seen UAE go out and buy very expensive riders. Like, you know, they brought in Adam Yates, who, you know, who podiumed at the Tour and who is massive key to, I think, also going down the line further on for Pogacar's success. Uh, so it's interesting to see how that type of uh, uh, atmosphere, growing champions, will fare in the future. Mm. And that the, the next contracts that are up certainly aren't uh, Vingegaard's because he's locked down for a, for, a, for a fair bit as well. But uh, uh, Roglic's is up after next season, and so is Sipkus. So it's interesting. Maybe maybe not a, on a one-year perspective for Jumbo Visma, but uh, I think it's 2025 is probably more of a breaking point for them as as to where as to where they're going to be heading. Brian, let's just conclude this part by hearing from their managing director, Richard Plugger, speaking the other day about the long-term future of the team and particularly with regard to sponsorship. At the moment, we know that Jumbo, vis- oh, sorry, Jumbo are due to pull out at the end of next year. could be this year if they find something sooner. And the, there was some speculation about them maybe unveiling a sponsor here at the Vuelta España or at the end of the Vuelta España. I'm not sure. I don't think that's going to happen. But Richard Plugger was certainly very bullish about the team's long-term future. Here he is speaking to me and a few other reporters a few days ago. Now we are here to stay, and uh, you know we have a plan until uh, 2030, and uh, no worries. Uh, yeah, we we will be here, and uh, we tr- we will uh, try to uh, to maintain this uh, this position. However, we have other teams who will uh, who will fight it, of course, but. No worries on that side. We will uh, we will go further. Yeah, yeah. We we have a good plan, and uh, you know we want to. Yeah, like I said, we want to move on and uh, be bigger, maybe even or uh, be stronger. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a long-term strategy we have here. Yeah. Sponsors are wel- welcome. So if a sponsor likes to uh, to join us, well, please be welcome. Uh, and I think uh, especially the American market is also at the moment very interested. Um, you know we have we have some uh, some in place and uh, there's no uh, as I said that no worries. But no, no new replacement for Yumba as of now. I will I will tell you when we know it. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, Brian, we heard just a moment ago from Richard Plugger about well, their long-term plan at Jumbo Visma. Sponsors sound as though they're lining up to well, to secure or help secure that team's future. Of course, and Cycling Podcast is also looking for a sponsor, just um, as an aside. 
Um, if, if anyone is interested in sponsoring us, no doubt we'll be competing with Jumbo Visma and Richard Plugger for the same corporate dollars. Um, but should you be interested, or should your company be interested, then um, you know where to find us. Drop us a line, social media, email. Um, you can find us in all of the, well, the normal places. Brian, Brian, this Vuelta a España, moving away for just a moment um, from Jumbo Visma and looking at this Vuelta a España more broadly, um, I've got my own views on whether it's been a good one, how it's, in what way it's been a good one, what way it's maybe left a little to be desired. What do you think, first of all? I think the um, Unipublic, which is basically the organization that does everything on behalf of ASO, I suppose you could say, they, they were pretty happy that uh, the racing took the center stage quite early after the, the shambolic uh, start, you know, with the evening team time trial and everything. It was sort of like, there was made a bit of, maybe a little bit too much, but there was some, made some mockery around the organizational skills of, of, of their enterprise. Uh, but I think uh, even including that, they, they come out, I think, with a good position because this was a very visible world internationally. They've gained, I think, heaps of new audience, including American, a huge American following. And I think that, not, I mean, the controversy, I don't think they, re- they, did, they didn't mind the controversy, even if it took away some of the, the edge of some of the racing in the, in the latter part of the race. But for the level of attention they got, for, the, for how many mentions they got in global media and online and, and wherever else they, they will want to try and measure their, their relevance and their commercial impact, they should be extremely happy. First of all, it could have been a different race if Evanapol was competitive in the, in the GC, but even if he wasn't, he produced some spectacular racing. And at the end of the day, that, that's, that's the best they can hope for, really. You know? I think they, they go out uh, and doing, looking back at this world, so thinking, yeah, you know, we, we kind of dodged a bullet here because the, the beginning was, was not ideal, but then eventually everything else sort of outshined it for better or for worse, you know, but even the controversy probably didn't mind that because it meant that a lot of people wanted to watch what the hell was going on. I would agree, Brian. It's been a, a good addition, very good addition, intriguing addition, compelling, particularly because of the storyline in the last week at Jumbo Visma, I think. Well, the, the proof is in the, the numbers and the eyeballs and the, well, the attention that has been garnered by this internal sort of power struggle at Jumbo Visma. I think we've all, we can all sense we, we, how much that has resonated. And also we can sense how excited it's got us. Um, there's a, it's a bit of a sort of guilty pleasure. There's a bit of, yeah. a, there's a bit of sort of com- conflict porn about it, but it has been really intriguing. And, you know, we've had these storylines going back down the ages in professional cycling, and they are some of the most titillating and exciting storylines that, that professional cycling throws up. I think also, you know, I've said on numerous occasions, you can probably hear Jumbo Visma, I think, oh no, it's Alperson de Koenig uh, singing, or oh, they're serenading Caden Groves with a, a sort of football style chant. I think that's his teammates singing. So if you can um, forgive them and forgive me for the interruption. <laughs> but Brian, I think, I think we talk a lot and I've taught on a few occasions during this Vuelta España about how common it is for Grand Tours to be sort of gutted by a crash early on or someone not performing 
and we, we really build this Vuelta a España as we thought it was going to be we called it El Clasico um, we had this mouth-watering prospect of three well the two Jumbo Visma big hitters at that time and then Remco going up against each other plus Ayuso plus Mas and others and they've all been present in some form um, to the end there were moments there was a moment Brian uh, around about the middle of the race where I thought Jonas Vingegaard was really fading badly and his lack of preparation was catching up to him and that maybe he would fade to the extent he wouldn't even finish the race. I mean, that was that was short-lived. And there was certainly a moment on the Tourmalet stage when I thought Remco Evenepoel wasn't going to finish the Vuelta a España. And both of them starred and were important figures in the second half of the race. So I think that, that made it... Um, well live up to that billing that we gave it of El Clasico just sort of on a personal note um, Spain as I've said many times it's just a, a wonderful country to to tour to visit um, to experience and to discover some fantastic discoveries for me I'd never stayed in Segovia before um, Soria um, lots of other smaller um, less well-known towns that I will hopefully return to and that I really enjoyed. Brian, I haven't dedicated too much time to the food in the podcast. No. Um, well, you, you uh, haven't so had your food and beverage manager alongside of you. <laughs> no, no. Well, you, both you and Lionel have been lacking um, on that front. And um, Brian, I can tell you the best wine I had was something called uh, Godina um, from the Campo de Borja Dio. Um, I think that's up near Zaragoza. It was 100% Grenache. And Brian, unfortunately, unfortunately, well, for, for me, the next morning, it was 16% proof, Oof. though. Um, it was a big, beefy wine. Um, I had a, a nice meal, Vittoria Gastes. I had a lovely tomato salad there. I'm sure people don't want to know. They don't want a full rundown of my menu every night. I mentioned the Peruvian meal we had in Huesca, which was fantastic as well. And just in terms of... Other places we visited, Asturias, the Asturian mountains, just um, breathtaking and take my breath away more every year. And they leave me always undecided about which of those northern regions I love the most, whether it's Cantabria, Asturias or Galicia. So Spain has been one of the stars of this Vuelta a España, undoubtedly. On the road, Brian, how have the Spanish fared and what will be the final analysis of Spain's Vuelta a España? I know a man, just the man, to tell us. His name's Fran Reyes, better known these days as Cartel Reyes, as those of you who listened to the podcast last week will know and understand. And, well, this is his final dispatch of this Vuelta España. Fran Reyes Ando. Wistful gazing with Fran Reyes. Hello, dear listeners. I'm talking to you from Granada, where me and my mild hangover are spending one of the last days of summer indoors, writing profiles and summaries from the Vuelta in a fast and furious session of keyboard biting. I find this Vuelta has been quite revealing for Spanish cycling in general. Just one stage win from the guy who pulled the last one, and three guys in the top 10 of the GC, separated by a mere 30 seconds. All three of them have shown consistency. But only Mikel Landa has proven his charisma. Landa did indeed fight with Jumbo Bisma for more than the scraps in the angle room, putting a brilliant performance. Enric Mas has been rather concealed 
behind the main GC guys, as he always tends to be. And Juan Ayuso has had a performance closer to Masi's than to his flamboyant entry in Pro Cycling's center stage last season. No reason to worry for Ayuso though. Uh, he has gone through a lot this year, and therefore he deserves to be cut some slack. And even Mas, even Enric Mas, he can take some positives of his performance, given how his preparation has been suboptimal after crashing out for the Tour de France. There are further reasons for Spanish cycling to be happy about this Vuelta. Mainly, we have seen talents like Cristian Rodriguez and Juan Pedro López ripening to become the sort of middle-class world tour riders we desperately need to take over from Luis Leon Sánchez, Ivan Lerviti, José Rada or Dani Navarro, who are all taking a bow this season. Besides, both Caja Rural and Burgos BH have been up to their modest task, with names like uh, Abel Valderstone and Pelayo Sánchez, who <laughs> yesterday sprinted out of Remco Pool's wheel. <laughs> atop the last climb. Both they have stepped up uh, a notch. Yet uh, let's not fool ourselves. The golden years of Indurain, Molano, Valverde, Contador, Freire, Sastre, Burito are already a matter for the books. Spanish cycling is facing a three to five years period of decline or relative drought. Movistar is rearranging its staff this winter and this shock will help the team and the talent of its roster to thrive. Hopefully, all or some of the pro teams will also push themselves a couple of levels above, up to the eights of a rich racing schedule on which they actually lack opportunities to land results because of how world tour crowded Spanish races are. I, for one, am looking forward to a few weeks off to recharge batteries, body and mind. Some bike rides early in the morning, some white wine glasses late in the evening, some yoga sessions at sunset, and some log deeply flavored coffee cups in the afternoon. You know, whatever you would expect from a wistful gazer like myself during his holidays. <laughs> anyway, I really hope that you have enjoyed this Vuelta and wish to hear from you soon. Bye bye. So Brian, we are just about ready to wrap up this Vuelta a España. We're going to hear from one or two other familiar voices um, before we do go, but anything you'd like to add? I'm very jealous of where you are right now, I'd have to say, Daniel, because it, it's, uh, it's still early, even if you know there's an evening stage and a late finish, podium succession is really often quite um, long-winded in, the, in Madrid. But still, it's, you, it's an early night in Madrid, Daniel. You, if you went out for dinner right now, you'd probably be, um, hopefully not, on your own. But people go out so late. You can you know, get yourself to a nice table at midnight. And that, I, I really love that part of uh, Spanish culture. You know? So, yeah, you'll, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll, if, if you can't find a good meal tonight, Daniel, it's, it's kind of your own fault. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed it also. I felt the, um, the other sort of intricacies of the welter and all the... The, the PR perspectives and also a lot of the racing I, I thought has been fantastic so it's I've, even if, if it wasn't the GC battle that you could have hoped for I think for other reasons uh, the Volta for me at least has actually overperformed this year 
Brian, tell you who else enjoyed it. Um, we're not going to hear from him, but I had a quick chat with Egan Bernal after the finish line. We we talked after the Tour de France about how delighted he was just to finish the Tour de France. He said he was delighted as well to finish the Vuelta a España. Um, we mentioned the other day how he sort of used this race as a building block for next year. But it's uh, well, it's a daunting challenge that awaits Ineos Grenadiers and other teams. They're going to have to try to match or raise their level to the extraordinary level that Jumbo Visma have reached over the last three weeks and indeed the last season. Um, Bernal says, he told me, we don't know how to reach that level yet. If we did, we'd already be doing it. But it'll be interesting to see how he fares uh, later. But he was certainly a happy man this evening and there were a lot of happy faces, a lot of sort of demob happiness. And we're going to hear from as I said, a familiar voice in just a minute. The Motown maestro, in fact, Larry Warbass. He's going he's gonna to play us out. But there's some other thanks as well as thanks to Larry that I would like to extend. Um, our producers, first and foremost, Hugh Owen, Will Jones, John Mooney, Adam Bowie and Tom Wally. They always do a fantastic job and they've been invaluable support to me in particular and to all of us who have contributed to the podcast over the last three weeks. Brian also mentioned earlier our search for a main sponsor. Um, we've got two wonderful sub-sponsors, shall we say, second sponsors, second names on the jersey, um, both equally important, Map Clothing and Science and Sport. It is a privilege to be ambassadors in some fashion for both of those two brands. Brian, I'd also like to thank David Luxton for all the help he provides behind the scenes. Stacey Snyder, whose mugs are an integral part of our Grand Tour coverage. They, well, the sort of excitement for our Grand Tour coverage builds before in the days leading up to the Grand Tours in step with the excitement about the sale of Stacey Snyder's mugs as well. Divine Sellers, our wine supplier, wine sponsor. Um, I think we're the only cycling podcast with a wine sponsor, but their Vuelta España cases are still available. DivineSellers.com if you'd like to find out more about them and maybe buy one for yourself or maybe one of your nearest and dearest. Brian, finally, I think it's finally, I'd like to thank my co-pilots over the last three weeks. You in particular, you've done a, a very solid stint. You've done quite a lot of stages on this world, haven't you, Brian? Um, I think you've probably got to almost a week, but it's been an absolute pleasure to share the airwaves with you. Lionel, of course... Fran Reyes and Rob Hatch. I really hope I'm not forgetting anyone, but I don't think I am. Brian, it's been a joy. Likewise, Daniel, uh, uh, yeah, as always with you and the Cycling Podcast. I did forget someone, Brian. Um, I forgot that we also had an audio diarist on this Vuelta a España whose contributions have been well, anything but forgettable. James Knox, um, it was great to have him back in the fold. We've missed him. Um, he hadn't done a Grand Tour since 2022 Giro d'Italia and he's had his ups and downs in this race but got through successfully and rode really well particularly yesterday and on several other days so hopefully hopefully Brian it'll be more Grand Tours for James next year and more audio diaries from James as well another insider in the peloton familiar voice beloved voice on the cycling podcast the Motown maestro lucky Larry Warbass I commanded him Brian to well to put in a request I remember that and um, for this fine 
for this final stage of the world so i was going to bring him a beer or a, i don't know some tacos or anything <laughs> pretty pretty much anything within reason that he asked for but um well as we're about to find out larry warbass forgot <laughs> to put in his order so i i turned up in the plaza de cibeles empty-handed and larry looked slightly aghast anyway here's is the last <laughs> voice you're going to hear on this Vuelta a España from us. Just one final thanks from me, Brian, and that's to all our wonderful listeners, some of whom I've met on the road in Spain in the last three weeks. Um, what I said about our sponsors, of course, of course, applies to you as well. We would not be here. We could not do this without you, and we're always flattered by and extremely grateful for your support. On that note, Brian, it's goodbye. Buenas noches from me and... Buenas noches from Larry, who you're about to hear. Good night, Brian. Good night, Daniel. Arriba, Larry Warbas. Ándale, ándale. Larry Warbas, the cycling podcast works a bit like Uber Eats. If you want me to bring something uh. to the finish for you then you have to order it I got nothing from you you've been, go- you've been ghosting I, I actually, me I meant to write surprise me and then I forgot <laughs> surprised you em- <laughs> by coming here empty handed Larry um, that looked brutal that final stage thanks to Mr. Avonapool and Mr. Ganna I was just thinking uh, Remco's such an asshole I mean <laughs> why did he have to make us suffer like that again you know but I think it was a, a final stage uh a little bit uh, in the flavor of this Vuelta. You I was going to say, very much in keeping with uh, yeah. Vuelta, you've been telling me you've had in the last few days. Yeah, I mean, not just me, I think everyone, you know. Um, I mean, apart from Remco, but uh, yeah, even Jumbo looked like they were suffering out there uh, today in the end. So, yeah, you know, I mean, this circuit's always super hard. So, that part didn't surprise me, but uh, I can tell you when I was moving up on the left on a lap, and I just saw a rocket launching in a polka dot jersey on the right. I thought, oh, this is going to be a tough one, you know. So, um, so yeah, I don't think we were totally ready for that. But uh, I'm just looking. Oh, maximum heart rate today, 151, Larry. That's one fewer than on the Angliru. So you could have tried even nah, harder. You could have nah, tried yeah. harder. Was Angliru 152? Ah, shoot, okay. Yeah, maybe. I think uh, my heart is also just tired. <laughs> Well, Larry, we'll let you go in a second. But any, um, well, today, the first half of the stage anyway, is always, it's a sort of festive occasion. See a lot of riders catching up with friends, maybe sort of commiserating or congratulating each other on the last three weeks. Having any nice chats today? Yeah, I had a really nice chat with Sepp, you know, uh, congratulating him. Thought it was pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, we, we chatted for a little bit. Uh, of course, I talked to Joe for quite a while, Sean Quinn. So, yeah, hit up all the Americans in the Peloton. Uh, yeah, we had nice conversation, and uh, to be honest, I think those are. I think I only talked to Americans today. Parochial, Larry. Parochial, <laughs> Larry. Um, okay, finally, is there anything that you've learned that you're going to take from this Vuelta España that you think is going to really sort of serve you over the next few months and into next year? Um, any important learnings, or is it too early for that? Do, are there things I want to change? Yes. Uh, whether, I mean, I don't know if it was, yeah, I guess the Vuelta made me, you know, just realize, like, essentially what I need to attack the winner, sort of, you know? Um, and, yeah. 
I think uh, I have a few things to work on in the winter, and, and we'll see. So you, you no doubt tell us all about them. Larry, um, holiday now? No, you've got more races probably, one or two. Yeah, I do. I have, uh, I'll do three one days in Italy, so I should do, I think it's like Bernocchi, uh, Trevali, and then Lombardia. So hopefully finish on a good note. We'll see. I'll try to recover this week, uh, eat some gelato i was actually going to ask you for a gelato and then i was like oh we're in spain you know i don't know if you're going to find a good gelato you know when you pronounce it like that you know you know when you pronounce it (laughs) well larry um, i'm sure you got a an evening celebration mika shail here has ended his career tonight Um, i'm going to let you ride off into the night but once again larry thank you so much for all of your generosity with us and all of the insight you provided over the this season particularly the grand tours and we'll no doubt we'll be catching up with you over the coming months so well done on completing a second grand tour not quite Sepp Kuss who did three and won one yeah, maybe and, that was my and problem his heart rate got to his heart rate got to at least 152 one. I think you've got the lowest maximum heart rate in the peloton actually so I don't know if you ever paid attention but on Twitter there's this Velofacts guy um, and he posts all the Strava data from like all the races and stuff and so you can see everyone who puts their watts and their heart rate and everything yesterday I was second lowest so I'm always around the same as Yasha Suderlin he also apparently has a very low heart rate because uh, he and I are always the two lowest and yesterday he had one beat lower average than me and we finished together so you're just very zen Larry that's what it is yeah 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 maybe maybe I need to work on my max heart rate over the winter The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.